Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. From the first European arrivals in the land that would become the United States until 1861, the conflict simmered beneath the surface of American life between the ideals of freedom, self-government, and equality on one hand, and the belief that economic and political power was best concentrated in the hands of that relatively small class of elite white males who saw themselves as fit to wield it. In 1865, the Civil War ended with victory for the side that promised a new birth of freedom. But the conflict did not end there. Tonight's guest traces the continuing battle from its origins in colonial times, past Appomattox, and up to the present in her new book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. We'll talk with the author, Professor Heather Cox Richardson, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio Social Distancing Center on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from the campus of East Carolina University, but I'm not there. Nobody is there. We are all here in the second week now of April 2020, April 15th, uh, avoiding the COVID-19 virus outside and staying away, doing our teaching online. But even though I'm still teaching for ECU, I am not speaking for ECU tonight, nor will my guest speak for anyone but herself, as we always do on the show. I hope everybody is doing well wherever you are. hope you are sheltering in place, avoiding contact, and helping to flatten the curve of the virus. It has certainly changed uh, life as we know it uh, everywhere, including the 
Civil War world. Before saying anything else, though, I want to quickly say thank you to all the listeners who responded with uh, emails or other comments uh, with best wishes for Emily, my wife, who had her um, attack of appendicitis uh, 10 days ago now, had a ruptured appendix, had to be removed quickly, and I'm happy to say she is doing much better. She's home, uh, getting in her steps by walking around the house and uh, hopefully back to 100% in not too many days. So much appreciated those thoughts there. The effect of the coronavirus on the Civil War world continues to come home. Uh, Today I got an email, many of you may have gotten the same one, that uh, this year's Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College is in fact canceled. Uh, It was to have taken place June 12th to the 17th, Uh, but Gettysburg College, its home, has announced uh, that they're not conducting any activities, no, no soccer camps, no nothing all summer. Uh, which is the same thing that our campus has done here at East Carolina University. Everything is off for the summer. So I was not at all surprised that CWI uh, is not going to happen this summer. Uh, if anything, surprised that it, it, the, the, the optimism of Pete Carmichael and his staff held out as long as it did. But uh, there's no way, obviously, to do that safely. But I'm confident they will come back with a even better and more interesting program Uh, when they're able to resume. So uh, many things not happening. The Stephen Ambrose historical tours I mentioned before. On the other hand, some interesting new things are coming out. Uh, Fold 3, which I have not used myself, uh, online uh, service that caters to genealogical interests, announced a partnership with American Battlefield Trust and other institutions to create a record of all American soldiers from the Civil War. Uh, Google Fold 3, look at it for yourself, see what you think, let me know. And other things happening in the Civil War world include this show, which will continue. We will be back next week, in fact, on April 22nd. Uh, with Evan Cutzler's new book, Living by Inches, The Smells, Sounds, Tastes, and Feeling of Captivity in Civil War Prisons, uh, guaranteed to make us all feel better about whatever quarters we are uh, semi-captive in at this point. On the 29th, Bert Dunkerley will be the guest talking about Uh, The End of the Confederacy, his book is entitled To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. And then on May 6th, we'll run a rerun show, no live show, because I will be grading final exams. We are still teaching here, even though we can't see our students. And so I'll be uh, uh, unable to join you that night. But we'll we'll be back on May 13th and, and going forward with other things. Before bringing in tonight's guest, I wanted to mention uh, an email I got a couple weeks ago. I referenced uh, when when we first started canceling face-to-face classes and, and taking uh, dramatic steps to, to deal with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I was talking about how that related to ECU, which is something I talk about every week, things on campus. And I, I tried to choose my comments quite carefully. I made the point that leadership up to that point in the 
public health crisis had been coming from universities, from sports leagues like the NBA, uh, and from state and local officials and not from Washington, which I think is a supportable observation. I certainly stand by it. But I got a response from a listener that consisted essentially of political buzzwords, like referring to the disease as the Chinese flu, uh, suggesting that I had TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, and accusing me of spreading fake news. I was genuinely curious what I had said that set the listener off. I didn't mention the president uh, when I said no leadership was coming from Washington. Washington also includes Congress. It includes the CDC, the Pentagon, Surgeon General, etc. So I wrote to the listener. I said, you know, I'm curious what I said. I, I acknowledge that listeners to this show don't all share the same political views. I try to be respectful of that difference. I see this as a place we can gather for an hour each week talk about our common interests in Civil War history, whatever our contemporary political views might be. And in response, I got a note completely different from the first one. It was written in whole sentences, thanked me for a thoughtful and respectful reply. There were no political insults. It advanced uh, an evidence-based argument that the president had shown leadership. I responded with a letter in the same tone, an email in the same tone, disagreeing with his points. But concluding, we could agree to disagree. I raised that exchange and the way it elevated so quickly from just a drive-by trolling to a meaningful exchange of views, because tonight's guest is both a historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction era and a regular commentator on current events. Some of you, uh, like my sister-in-law, may be big fans of uh, our guest's uh, online presence, her, her Facebook and, and uh, blog, newsletter, all the different things uh, that are used to, to uh, communicate. Others of you may find these contrary to what you believe. I am just expressing the hope that whatever your position on historical or contemporary topics, that we can continue to talk about them with mutual respect for each other and let ourselves be guided by the better angels of our nature. And with that Lincolnian reference, let me bring in our guest tonight, uh, Heather Cox Richardson. Uh, Professor Richardson, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Jerry. It is is good to hear from you. Uh, Let me start asking, how are you doing? How's your campus? How's your family? How's everybody? We are shut down like you are. And we are, uh, my, my personal uh, family is, is fine. Uh, there's some job losses around the, around the family, but that is what it is. Everybody is alive. That's what's important. And I will say, having listened to your introduction, one of the things that has been great about the coronavirus is that we have, a lot of us have made and renewed old connections. And your listeners might like to know that you and I, once upon a time, knew each other. Um, <laughs> Back in graduate school, we were in graduate school together, and I think we have seen each other once since then, very shortly after we graduated, and uh, and I think we shared an advisor, so it's kind of fun after, um, well, I'd love to say 10 years, but I think it's been more like 30 um, to to actually get to talk to you again. I'm not sure your your readers would know just how well regarded you are in Lincoln studies and Civil War studies, and... Um, and it's it's really exciting to be on your uh, on your your radio program. Well, well, thank you. It's it's good, uh, nice for you to say that. It's important, uh, as longtime listeners know. I rarely miss an opportunity 
to to drop the H bomb to mention Harvard University, the source of our our degrees, both of us, uh, because I find that by amortizing the prestige of that that claim over thirty years now, I've got it down to where it's only like ten or fifteen dollars per per time I mention it. <laughs> um, but you said something else that I think is really is really important for your listeners and for you and me and for us all in this moment. You know, I get, you know, people on the right often complain about the way I write, and they may not know that people on the left complain just as vociferously. And I think for people like you and me, we look at the world from the perspective of Lincoln. You know, we're both Lincoln people. And so... You know, a lot of what I write uh, when I talk about modern politics is really focused through a Lincolnian vision, which is not a democratic vision, and it's not a modern-day Republican vision, but it's one that doesn't fit easily with either one of them. So in terms of being able to listen to my ideas about where the world has been and how it got there, um, I think it's kind of important to remember that I'm really not either a Republican operative, as I have been accused of being, or a Democratic operative, as I have been accused of being, I am absolutely a sleeper Lincoln cell out here in Massachusetts who's <laughs> trying to look at the world and say, well, wait, 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 that's not how Lincoln would have done it. And that might, um, that might help some, some of your listeners understand exactly why I have framed my understanding of America the way I have. It really is all focus through the prism of Abraham Lincoln and, and, and his principles and where I think uh, those principles would have led him. You know, we, we both studied with David Herbert Donald, the, the great Lincoln biographer, and uh, I've, I've certainly adopted a great deal of that, that way of seeing the world as well. Um, the, there are times, though, let me ask this, uh, I was supposed to give a talk at the Civil War Institute on uh, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted, part N, whatever it is now, uh, in the 21st century. And there are times in the last couple of years I've thought, yes, the Lincoln theme actually has been exhausted, that the the notions of, of rhetoric, of, of evidence-based argument and uh, logic that propelled Lincoln and made him comprehensible and made him such a powerful leader uh, are regarded as obsolete in some parts of the, the body politic today. And and maybe when I'm feeling my worst, I wonder if Lincoln's time has passed. Never. <laughs> let me uh, let me set your mind to rest. Never. Good. Fuck me um, up. I appreciate it. I think I think maybe as a as a as historians, um, what the, the place I come to is, do we really need another book about Lincoln's, you know, journey to buy shoelaces? You know, there's some point at which I sit there and say, now that being said, I have in my, in my back pocket a book I want to write, but you know, do we really need yet another examination of Lincoln's life? I really don't. I'm pretty good, I think, where I am. All of that yeah. being said... Sid Blumenthal's new book was terrific, and um, because he looked at it from a new perspective, that of a politician, and of course, Doris, Doris Kearns Goodwin's a, um, 
uh, team of rivals blew me out of the water. You know, when I, I was asked to, to review that, and I actually turned it down a number of times because I thought, really, I can't. You know, what new is there to say? And, of course, she had brand new things to say. But that's really different. The biography of Lincoln or the, bio, the biographies of Lincoln are different than his principles. And his principles of what America stands for, I think, are more important than ever. And that's really what... Um, what the, the social media stuff you referenced is about for me is, is really sort of saying, if I am looking at the principles of evidence-based argument of um, a government that responds uh, to the people as opposed to a very small minority, um, if I'm looking for basic levels of fairness in, and justice in American society, who articulated that better than Lincoln and, and how much we still need those words today? And I actually think, going back again to what you said originally, um, those are not partisan positions in America nowadays. The political parties are not part of our constitutional system. They're, they're separate entities. And they don't really deliberately embrace those principles that uh, that Lincoln that Lincoln himself so well articulated. And I think that that kind of bipartisan or rather nonpartisan emphasis on what America really means, what we stand for, is more important today than it's ever been. But you know, Lincoln himself was a, a fierce partisan. He, he believed you know you had to be in a party to to mean anything. Does that conflict with what you're saying? Um, no, I don't think it necessarily conflicts with what I'm saying. It is worth remembering he started his own party to do that, you know, and you know Jefferson felt the same way. It's much easier to believe you have to be a fierce partisan if, in fact, you started the party. But that being said, um, today's partisanship, and and um, in contrast to what Lincoln was up to, is I think much less um, much less inclusive. I mean, the that. Lincoln's partisanship really was based on a profound idea about what America should look like. Today's partisanship, at least until this last year, has been much less so really since the 1960s when professional politicians took over and the, the idea of, of parties and rather than emphasizing a national narrative and who we are, began to emphasize how they could slice and dice the electorate to nail together some co- sort of a coalition. And that process won elections, but it didn't help us define who we are. And in the end, what it's done, to my mind, is to raise, pow- raise power and money to the very top of American society. And those people um, are don't have the same interests as the the bottom 99% of us. And that's not to say that that there needs to be, I, I again think I come down as a Lincolnian in the idea that we don't necessarily have to have the concept of a class war so much as the idea that we have the social web that Lincoln talked about. And that um, that really has fallen by the wayside really since, uh, I looked at the statistics just today, since 1981 when wealth in America began so dramatically to move upward so that we look right now quite like the 1920s or the 1890s or the the 1850s, when you have a very small group of people who control the political power and the country's economy, uh, and most people are left out. And so the political parties have come to reflect that, kind of in the way the 1850s did, much more than they reflected Lincoln, who said, let's step back a minute, get away from the partisanship of the Democrats and the Whigs, and redefine America based on a vision of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that, you know, I, I... 
my gut tells me, and by the way, my email tells me as well, that a political party that embraced those values, again, would go very far in today's America. Well, I think that the comparison to the 1850s is, is especially striking, and I want to talk about that with you. We're going to take a short break first, though. We'll come back in just a moment. Uh, our guest tonight, Heather Cox Richardson, is the author of How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams. Each week, join Lemont as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Heather Cox Richardson, author of How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. Uh, Heather, quick question. Am I getting the title absolutely right? Because I'm using uh, an advanced copy of your book, your publisher sent, and the, the actual published copy that is now out in April 2020 is sitting somewhere in the, the mail system of East Carolina University. Maybe it's in my office uh, but I can't go there and find out, so I'm, I'm using the early copy. Uh, are there any major changes from the uh, advanced copy? No, and it's a funny thing. Um, as you know, when you write a book, you have a working title. And that title, um, 
was my working title, and it was a working title that uh, Sarah that uh, Sarah Builder, who's a, a historian of the Constitution, jokingly put to me over lunch one day, and I was like, "Oh, that's fun, that's catchy," and I, it never occurred to me it would be the title of the book. And when they actually got to the point of designing the book cover, which by the you know, as you know, when you write a book, usually they change the title at the very end, so your readers may. Your listeners may realize when they when they ask an author to talk about their books, they often kind of clutch because we have our pet names for our books that are the ones we live with, but they've changed them at the last minute. So, mm-hmm. you know, like my second book is titled Death of Reconstruction, but in my mind, it has always been not black and white. So when people say, you know, what is the name of your book? You're like, uh, uh, I, I know this, I know this. Anyway, so when they went to design the cover, I, I wrote to the editor and I said, well, what are we going to call it? And he goes, well, we have a title. And I was like, you can't do that. We have to change it. And he's like, no, uh, no, we're going to keep it. We like it. So we have the, uh, we have the, uh, the name that Mary Builder gave it and, um, and uh, so it has stayed ever since. So you, you point out by 1850, the United States has a ruling class or a ruling clique, perhaps, uh, of slaveholders, uh, incredibly wealthy, disproportionately powerful. But only 75 years earlier, the country is, is born with documents that say all men are created equal, they all have certain inalienable rights, uh, the country is overthrowing tyranny as it's perceived in the form of King George. You know, what, uh, what happened? Uh, how, how did the, the American experiment go so far astray in that period? First of all, I want to point out one of the things that we so often miss when we talk about the Declaration of Independence is all the caveats. You know, the Declaration of Independence only included men. It didn't include women. It didn't include people of color. All of those things are absolutely true. But the establishment of a government based on the principle that all men are created equal is astonishing for its time. It is an incredibly radical document. What this says is that countries should not be based on religion. They should not be based on cultural hierarchies. They should not be based on social hierarchies. They should not be based on the military. They should be based on a principle that all men are created equal and that they're going to create a body of laws under the Constitution that do that, that, are, that attempt to establish that all men are created equal. But when you come out of that moment... No one knows what that's going to look like. I mean, imagine if, uh, if today we decided to have a new kind of government that said all, um, you know, all, all, all bodies of nature, all rivers, all oceans, all trees, all everything should have the same standing as a human being, or all animals should. What would mm-hmm. that even look like? I mean, how would you do that? And that's the problem that, that Americans confront after, really not so much after the Revolution, but after the War of 1812, when it's really clear after 1815 that, in fact, Britain really is going to pull back from the colonies, the former colonies, and America really is going to be a nation. So what's the country really going to look like? And this is one of the reasons that Americans become so obsessed in the 1820s and the 1830s with travel logs of Europeans coming and saying, this is what America looks like. And what Americans develop in the 1820s during the era of good feelings is this concept of the quintessential American as a farmer, 
as a man who uh, is usually married and has children, and they're all going to be able to work together and work uh, to accumulate, um, to, to, to work in their fields and to, to produce more than they can consume and to produce, um, uh, be able to sell their surplus and to accumulate capital. And what happens in the 1820s especially is those things begin to take on a different character in the North and the South, but they're still pretty much the same. The idea that you're a farmer. Now, what's different, of course, in the South is that the farmer works by enslaving other people to to work for him. But there's not a huge change in the 1820s. What is the huge change that happens is in the 1830s with the Trail of Tears and the opening up of the southeastern lands for the spread of large plantations. And, you know, Joshua Rothman has that fabulous book, uh, Flush Times and Fever Dreams, where he talks about the land rush into the southeast and how that really privileges people who have money the same way the tech boom, for example, in our lifetimes, privileged people who were able to pull together the capital they needed to go ahead and, and become Microsoft, for example, or become Apple. And so when that happens, the, the southern version of becoming a, of rising and being an American farmer, if you will, changes. And it changes to, um, to mean that you're going to be able to enslave other people. Now, that's not to say that small farmers didn't own other human beings as well. Of course they did. But a very few people start to become very wealthy very quickly. And when that happens, they start to mold society around themselves, not only in terms of politics, although certainly they're politically active, but also in terms of the literature, which begins to talk about plantations and patronage and ta- starts to talk about paternalism and how this is really the ideal of American society. And also religion. Religion, of course, which begins to talk about how enslavement is actually good for everybody. And finally, when you get to the point of the the enormous economic boom of the 1850s in cotton, you get uh, this sense that there are very few people in the American South or in America in general who really understand how to run the economy. And they're the people who are the extremely wealthy. They're the ones who, you know, have the, the... European masterpieces on their walls or who own five plantations like uh, Wade Hampton III does or who, you know, can afford really fancy food like that crazy olive oil stuff coming out of Italy. <laughs> and the idea is, is, and this is not unique to America, the idea grows that really the concept of all men being created equal was incorrect. And Alexander Stevens says that quite explicitly, as does James Henry Hammond, that they were wrong. And, and what really needed to happen to move society forward effectively was to make sure that a very few, um, few men had control of the economic and the political system because they were really the only ones who understood how things really should work. And that idea begins to take over the South in the, in the 1830s, 1840s, but it really flowers in the 1850. And because of the political, um, the political developments of the 1850s, the, those people, those very few very wealthy Southern planters read out of the Democratic Party, or really force out of the Democratic Party, all the Democratic moderates who say, no, yeah, we're not so sure about this. We actually think people at the bottom should have a say here. People like Salmon P. Chase. People forget he was a Democrat. Um, people 
in the in the north who believed in uh, people like Stephen Douglas, people who believed mm-hmm. that in fact uh, democracy was about regular, ordinary men working their way up, um, become uh, overawed in the Democratic Party, and those very few wealthy men gradually managed to manipulate the system in order to take over the country at large by the by 1860. And when it turns out they're not going to get their way, of course, they take their marbles and go home. It's very interesting because if in fact they had gone ahead and held congressional elections in 1860. It's entirely likely the Democrats would have won. Looks a lot like they would have won, certainly in the Senate, but also in the House of Representatives. Maybe not, but they would at least have held the Senate. By, by walking away and saying we're not going to participate, what the very few elite slaveholders are doing is saying, you know, we don't care if we're going to hold power in Congress as Democrats because we don't like the idea that most Democrats don't think we should run everything. We're determined to run everything, so they take themselves out of the Union and try to start their own new nation based in that principle. Now, if you're going to have, though, a powerful class at the top, uh, they have all, all the majority of the money, the, the capital, the political power, but the country is still you know, a voting republic. They don't have the numbers. How do they persuade people whose well-being is not necessarily going to be advanced economically by not being at the top of the pile, uh, the 99%, as it were. How do they convince enough of them to support them in elections? Well, you have, of course, hit precisely why this book seems to me to be of theoretical interest to historians as opposed to simply being an interesting story about what happened um, leading up to the Civil War and then how that played out, replayed itself after the Civil War. And that is how do politicians... Uh, interface, if you will, with their voters. What is the connection between a voter and a politician? And, and I'm not one of those people who thinks that, um, that somehow, uh, there's some magic going on. I think what this book argues is the connection here is that, that leaders like those in the South before the Civil War were able to convince voters to vote for them, first of all, by advancing a good story. I mean, the idea that they are taking care of their, um, of their enslaved workers helps to, to, um, to make what they're doing palatable. But more important, what they're saying is we're on your side. We're the ones who are going to make sure that you are going to be able to rise yourself by being able to continue to enslave people. This is actually a crucial issue for small farmers to be able to enslave one or two other people to work in their fields. So they say, first of all, we're going to make sure you get a piece of the pie. But of course, by the the eighteen you know the, by the the early eighteen fifties, it's very clear that that's not the case. That in fact, the opening of the southeastern lands has thrown thrown out the the small farmers, who at least one historian recently has thought have become um, a roving population that actually threatens the the major slaveholders. That's Carrie Lee Merritt's Masterless Men that came out last year. But so at first they say we're going to help you to participate, but then they, then then as I say, society starts to spin. Around them, the churches start to say, "Hey, these guys are really a little bit better than us." And then the newspapers start to say that, and they get a lot of press. And there's novels about how great they are. There would be movies if they had movies in those days, and of course they don't. But after that, then they've got a real problem because people aren't stupid. I mean, voters aren't stupid, and they look at this and they say, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! We're not getting anything here that you promised. Our lives are actually getting a lot worse." And they keep saying, well, it's going to get better. Well, fine, but I want it to get better today. So what do you do next? What you do next, then, is you start to, um, to manipulate the system. 
you start to make sure that certain people can't vote, that you're going to, to make sure that um, you're suppressing the votes of people who disagree with you. And more important than that, even in the, in the first stage of this, is to go ahead and make sure they can't get other information to make sure they can't see statistics that show how badly they're doing. And there you see the suppression of books like Hinton, Rowan, Helper's um, um, The Impending Crisis. You're going you're gonna to make sure they can't get abolitionist literature. You're going to make sure they can't get books from the North. They can't have speakers from the North so that they can't have this worldview challenge. So they're getting, getting this worldview from the elite planters that says uh, this is better for everybody and that's not going to be challenged. And even still, again, people aren't stupid. And they look at this and they say, wait a minute, you know, we don't think this is probably right. We, we, there's a, we're working ourselves to the bone here, and we're still falling behind. What's the problem? And when that happens, then uh, the, the elite slaveholders, as I say, manipulate the system so that fewer people can vote. And then crucially, in the 18, uh, leading up to the 1860 election, if you are in any way identified with a party that is not going to vote for the slaveholders, they simply ride you out of town on a rail, or they make it so you can't actually vote in that 1860 election. So basically, they begin by to take over the democratic system through propaganda, um, or let's call it a worldview, because I don't like the word propaganda, especially in this era, but through a worldview, and then they... um, Then they... um, they make sure that their their voters can't get other information, which again you see through um, the suppression of the mails and the inability to circulate abolitionist literature through the South. And then finally, they simply say, well, if you don't agree with us, you are somehow anti-Southern or anti-American, and they make sure you can't vote. So, uh, so in the election of 1860, they managed to pull off a win, but they have managed to pull off a win by making sure they're the only really viable position going into that election. So it's a really instrumental, you know, four-step process that starts with ideas and ends with the actual mechanics of taking over the system. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Heather Cox Richardson, author of How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Heather Cox Richardson. She is the author of How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. Heather, your description of how the the pro-slavery party in the South uh, held power, won elections, even though it did not necessarily have majority of numbers, 1850s, uh, reminds me uh, earlier this year, uh, in January, uh, Cedric Deleon uh, was guest on the show, whose book uh, is a sociologist, political sociologist, who writes about how uh, political parties come and go and... Uh, and specifically focused on that that era, and showed how how the, uh, the Southern Democrats wrote anyone out, uh, as you point out, literally rode them out of town, but uh, treated any opposition to them as opposition to the South and its most cherished uh, ideals and institutions, and, and no opposition was to be permitted. Uh, but let me jump ahead into the Civil War era itself. Once the the pro slavery party leaves Washington. You describe how uh, the other side of the coin, the free labor ideology, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and his administration uh, can suddenly burst forth this new philosophy, the idea that government, uh, as Lincoln says, the legitimate object of government is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done but cannot do at all or cannot so well do for themselves in their separate and individual capacities completely different philosophy of government, that it should be doing things for people. Uh, how, how do they play that out during the Civil War years? Well, that's a wonderful quotation that you've got there. It's on a fragment Lincoln writes, and mm-hmm. it stands in stark contrast to what the elite slaveholders, and, I, and again, I want to emphasize here that um, slaveholding is, is somewhat widespread in the South, but I'm talking about the elite slaveholders, the people who have, um, you know, I think the definition is more than 50 enslaved people, and they're really the ones who are calling all the shots in the South in the 1850s, at least the late 1850s. So how does Lincoln contrast to that? Um, the the slaveholders, the, these elite slaveholders, insisted the government must do absolutely nothing except protect property. And they believe that based on the Constitution, but what they say, if the government starts to mess around in anything, especially dealing with the economy, it's only a question of time until they take on human enslavement. And so there's this wonderful, for a historian, obviously, when I say that, I'm thinking as a historian, there's this wonderful moment in um, uh, 1858, when James Henry Hammond is giving the speech that's known as the Cotton is King speech, but I like to know it as the Mudsill speech, because mm-hmm. he says in that, you know, I don't care what the people want. It doesn't matter if the people all want, um, you know, the government to, to dredge the harbors 
and I'm not sure that's his example, but that's certainly something that was on the table at the time. I don't care if that's what everybody in America wants. The government can't do it because the government has boundaries around it that say that, they, that it cannot do anything except protect property. So even if that's what all the people want, they can't have it. This is all we can do. And, of course, he's trying to protect his own institution of, of human enslavement when he says that. Lincoln looks at this and he says, well, from the quotation that you talked about, which I think is dated 1854, at least as far as we know, and he says, that's, that's kind of crazy because look at what happened to me in New Salem. You know, New Salem in Illinois, where Lincoln had laid down his roots as a young man, failed because it was on the river and the river wasn't dredged, so, so boats couldn't go up and down it, and in fact, it died out as a, as a uh, town closer to a deeper water port did much better. And he kept saying, you know, if only they dredged the stupid river, I could have made a living in New Salem. And so what we really need to do is to have a government that can put together its resources and its ideas to do things that individuals can't so that when the individual then applies his or her, not her, it's only his in this period, applies his labor to it, they're going to go ahead and be able to rise. And that's going to be good for everybody because they're going to produce more than they can consume. And as a result, um, money is going to rise up and people at the next level are going to do fine and the country is going to boom. So this concept of the government responding to the needs of the people um, is kind of a philosophy when Lincoln takes office. They don't know how they're going to implement it. But with the uh, coming of the Civil War, instantly the U.S. government has to do something to pay for the war. So the first thing it does, of course, is it raises men. But the second thing that it has to do is raise money. And they, the, the impetus for, for the changes that come really come from the fact that that war is going to cost America more than $5 billion in bonds, and it's going to cost it uh, it's sometimes as much as a million dollars a day, this all from a time when these numbers were just unthinkable before the war. So the U.S. Congress starts by, um, or first the, the Secretary of the Treasury starts by trying to sell bonds to bankers, and bankers in New York City at the time really sympathized more with the slaveholders, who are the ones who have been providing the most of their money. They're the wealthy people in America. And so they're like, hey, well, I guess we'll back your, your government but only if you give us really, really amazing interest rates. So pretty quickly, the U.S. government has to turn to other sources of income. And what it does is, first of all, it invents our, um, our greenbacks, a national money that's based not in banking, but rather in the United States government's willingness and ability to pay it. It's also going to develop national banknotes, which are based in U.S. bonds. It's going to float, as I say, almost, five, uh, almost $6 billion worth of bonds, which are bought overwhelmingly by regular, ordinary Americans. But then it says... Well, we also are going to have to, as early as 1861, July of 1861, Congress steps in and it says, we need uh, to tax people. And Americans, uh, uh, the Republican Congress during the Civil War invents American national taxation. So we get what were called manufacturing taxes. They're the equivalent sort of, of um uh, sales taxes nowadays because they get passed on to the consumer. They put in, uh, manufacturing taxes on virtually everything, and they also invent the income tax. People think that's from 1913 and the Democrats, the, um, the Revenue Act of 1913. It is not. It's the Republicans during the Civil War who invent the American income tax, and in 1862 they're going to give us the precursor to the IRS um, to collect it at a national level as opposed to at the state level because they thought that would be more efficient. So then the government looks at this and says, well, we've just taxed everybody. 
if we're going to tax everybody, we better give them the opportunity to be able to earn enough money to pay for those taxes. So beginning in 1862, the Republican Congress does a number of things to try and make it possible for individuals to work hard and accumulate capital. So they start by... um, passing the Homestead Act, which gives uh, 40 acres of land to individuals who are um, willing to go out west and farm that land. And that, of course, is going to be Native American land, which is going to cause its own problems, both for the Indian population and later for the American government. But they put men on the land, and they also realize that they have to understand how to use that land, so they pass the Land-Grant College Act, which gives us our state universities. That's where those come from. They also create the uh, Department of Agriculture, which is designed to give regular guys seeds, good seeds, because... um, In the 19th century, of course, you can't just go to a catalog and buy your seeds. You have to have them passed on from your father or from neighbors, and that breaks down. If you're going to move west, you're not going to be able to get cucumber seeds from your dad, so the government is going to supply them through the Department of Agriculture. And they also um, decide to do something drastic, and that is to guarantee that men can get out west. So beginning in 1862 and then revised in 1864, they uh, assume the ability, the Congress assumes the ability to charter a corporation, and that's where we get the Union Pacific Railroad, which is designed to move people out onto those fields and into the mines as well um, out west. So... uh, Congress during the war under, under Lincoln takes on this much more active role. And then, of course, in 1865, it does the, um, it really underscores this idea that every man in America should be able to work its way up by writing and then um, sending to the states for ratification the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlaws hereditary slavery. There is still slavery for um, or human enslavement for after commission of a crime, which is a major loophole through which you know tanks are going to drive basically in the late 19th century. But the idea that you should not in America have hierarchies of race um, really is illustrative of this concept that American democracy really under Lincoln is designed to mean that every man should have a quality of opportunity to work his way up. Not a quality of outcome, but a quality of opportunity. And Congress has put its muscle behind the idea of doing that, and then, of course, is going to continue until about 1870 to go ahead and try and put the muscle of the American government behind this concept of human, or rather male, equality um, in this period. It's really a very, very exciting time, and the use of the government to establish equality of opportunity is really laid down right then by Lincoln um, in, in this major crisis against, in this struggle against the hierarchical system of the Confederacy. It, if the book ended there, we'd say it's a happy ending. The, the good guys have triumphed. The message of uh, equality and opportunity uh, defeats the oligarchs of the, of the slaveholding world. But you say, as that chapter comes to an end, that, in fact, this victory is an illusion. Um, We have only just a couple minutes left, so we're not going to trace the whole story. uh, uh, But we can give a a spoiler uh, alert that will hopefully cause all listeners to go out and get a copy of this book and read the rest of it for themselves. Uh, The heart of the resurgence of hierarchical principles comes not in the South, but in the West, 
can you give, uh, we just have a minute and a half thumbnail, why the West? Because the West has its own history, and that's something we always, back, those of us who live back East, forget. The West mm-hmm. never had this whole dem- democratic concept of working your way up with your family and accumulating capital through hard work. Um, when Americans moved West across the Mississippi, they inherited a system that was there um, from the, the previous inhabitants there or the people who were still there of hierarchy and most crucially when Americans did that, when Americans moved west, they adopted that system, and it was cemented during the war, through the Civil War, through a series of Indian wars and massacres that convinced Americans back east that um, the Mexican-Americans who lived in what had been the Mexican session in 1848 and the Chinese-Americans who lived in California and the Native Americans who lived throughout the region were not really equal, that they really should not be on the same level as white Americans. And while that concept was erased in the American East, at least theoretically, between white Americans and black Americans, that simply didn't take on the hierarchical structures that existed in the West. So the West became a natural place for uh, for former Confederate ideology to take root and to grow again, and eventually to become the centerpiece of uh, America in the 20th century after World War II, where that hierarchical structure read itself back across America as a whole in much the same way that uh, the elite slaveholders had managed to take control of America um, before the Civil War in the 1850s. This book really tells a, a fascinating story how that resurgence of hierarchy, hierarchy uh, dominated, uh, also how it then was defeated a second time with the, uh, the effort to defeat Nazism in the Second World War, the civil rights, uh, Second Reconstruction that followed, the liberal consensus, uh, all of this on top of the New Deal. And then uh, the conservative counter-movement from, uh, that has taken power since the 1980s, uh, which brings us to today, which unfortunately brings us to the end of our time for the show. But listeners, if you want to follow this story and see how the civil war that we all uh, read so much about lives on and echoes in contemporary politics, uh, you'll want to read How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America – by our guest tonight, Heather Cox Richardson. You can also read her in social media and Facebook. Uh, if you, uh, Heather, if you can put a link to uh, tonight's show on your Facebook page, my sister-in-law will, I, I will get validation in her eyes because she's a big fan. Well, I'll be happy to do that. You just got to make sure I get the link. I'll also put uh, it out on, uh, on Twitter. We'll definitely do that. So, again, best of luck with the book. Stay safe where you are, and thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks for having me, Jerry. It's a real pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.